Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. They say patience is a virtue, but it's not something everyone has in abundance. How do you remain patient when the end result is always long-term? When you own a winery, it's a very careful process from beginning to end. It can take up to three years to produce viable grapes, but there are always other factors to consider that can affect the outcome of the product, and many of those not in your control. Joining us today is Lauren Ackerman, the owner and proprietor of Ackerman Family Vineyards and Ackerman Heritage House to talk about how to create a brand and product that's deeply rooted in tradition while remaining innovative. Lauren, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Thank you. So happy to be here with you all today. It is great. I've had the chance of being able to sample your wines from time to time. I've known about you guys for a while, and I'm excited. Very uh, one of the one of the great wineries in Napa, and you're at the southern tip of it. And there's, of course, Napa's not a really big area, but I want to ask you a first question because when I was looking at your pedigree <laughs> and your background, you came from a background that was rooted in IT, information technology, and marketing and sales. So how and when did you make the transition from, from IT to, uh, you know, to growing great, growing great uh, grapes and turning it into great wine? It's, uh, it all started in 1994 when um, we bought a vineyard in Napa. And I, at that point in time, <clears throat> I enjoyed wine. I really had no background or education in the wine business. And as you mentioned, I had been working in the um, information technology world and business management and business management consulting kinds of things, working for myself um, primarily. And, you know, when we bought the vineyard in 1994 in Napa, most of my clients were still down in San Jose, <clears throat> California, which is, you know, hour and a half to two hours, depending on traffic that I would go down every morning driving, you know, leaving at, you know, 6.30 a.m. to get down there. And it didn't really, uh, the whole concept of being in the wine business really didn't start um, until a little bit after having that property. We started making wine in 1995, but just by experimenting with it, we wanted to see what the, um, the property would produce. So we just made a couple barrels of Cabernet Sauvignon every year, about 50 cases or so, and did that for nine years, kind of checking on the quality, making sure it was, you know, what we liked. We made some changes based on input we received from people that we gave the wine to. We didn't even sell it back in those days. We just literally gave it away and said, what do you think? Everybody kind of responded back. And slowly but surely, my own transition from being in the technology side of things and business management consulting shifted um, over around the year 99, 2000 to become really more engaged in the wine business and starting to think about this as a possibility of actually creating a small boutique winery uh, in Napa at that point in time. And certainly in an area of Napa that to this day, some more and more people are learning about, but it's a part of Napa that most people just drive by because it's due east of the town of Napa. Most people head straight to Yountville or Santa Helena or Oakville. They don't even know about the area called Coombsville which is this beautiful area, 11,000 acres, 
Uh, when we were there, we were only one of maybe 10 or 12 uh, wineries or vineyards in the area. Now there's over 50. And it's this beautiful area with a different way, the style of grapes and style of winemaking. And uh, my life just sort of evolved along with with my learning and education of what takes place in the vineyard. That's fantastic. Now, I always say, I don't know what I don't know. And I got to imagine from the IT business to get in sales and marketing into the wine business, you probably didn't know everything. But was that was that helpful for you or a hindrance to you? Because sometimes, you know, that not knowledge, you don't know what you don't know. You, you actually right. just you forge ahead and do things that maybe other people say, well, you can't do that. I, you know, I think, you know, Jeff, that's exactly how I feel about it. Cause it's like, you know, I, I was fortunate that I had a you know strong business background already. And so I was able to look at the wine industry with a different set of eyes and ask some of those questions and, well, why can't you? And what about this? And some of it, you know, you could definitely make some changes in how you approach things and others you had to go by, you know, what was actually realistic for, you know, growing farming and, and harvesting grapes. And I think for me, you know, again, you know, we talk about patience. This took a long time. This was not an overnight. This was, um, you know, if you think about it, nine years of making 50 cases a year, just to learn, just to understand, just to produce something that you hoped maybe would be good enough to be out there in the market. And that time actually didn't come about until our first commercial vintage, which was the 2003 vintage that didn't actually come out until 2007. It took four years just to get that ready to go to market. You know, I talk about conditions of satisfaction and we all have these goals or what I call conditions of satisfaction, the things that we want to see come out of the business or come out for me, my family, you know, or maybe even it could be even spiritually for a lot of us. Are you meeting your conditions of satisfaction from when you got in to what you're doing now? I mean, it's obviously it's become a full time thing for you. It's a real business. It's you got a lot around it as opposed to when you probably first got started. Oh, we'll buy this. We'll see what happens and see where it goes. And now now it's a real entity. Are you meeting what you consider your conditions of satisfaction? You know, I think pre-COVID. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Good, Good point. Yeah, this this year everything has changed, but and yeah. not necessarily in a negative way all the time. You know, it's been a challenge, obviously. But I would say, you know, my own learning process and having patience because building a brand, as many of us in the marketing and, and strategic marketing side know, takes time. It yeah. takes investment. It takes a lot of things. And so every small goal that was met along the way absolutely provided that satisfaction getting you know our first review getting our first wine out there it's i remember the the concept of going to my very first wine tasting which was in southern california down orange county and it's sort of like putting your your first artwork or your first child on display or whatever you want to and wondering if people are going to enjoy it or like it or respond positively to it and when they do it's this amazing satisfaction like okay we can do this. This is on the right path. We, we can make this work. That patience of doing that over and over again and building it, building a brand when there's what, 20,000 brands in the wine business alone, yeah. you know, that's, you know, part of building um, your strategy, building what your goals are, working towards them and, and really, truly 
you always stay inv invested in what is going on in the industry and understanding what's going around you, but you don't let that distract you. You have to stay your own course, adjust it as you need to, but you stay your own course and that patience and that goal provides the satisfaction along the way. This year, big changes, but, but yeah. still, that's also, you know, we're, we're seeing our way through as a small producer, I'm only making, you know, less than 2000 cases a year, which is, you know, not a lot. Um, it's grown, but we, and we probably would have grown even more this year had not COVID-19 started up. But, um, you know, again, that's part of looking long-term, looking down the road. I'm always, when I used to do my IT consulting, I would always work with clients like, where do you want to be in five years or 10 years? You know, what's your short game, but also what's your long game? And I, to this day, with my small team, what's our long game? You know, we're looking at that, you know, yes, there's things that change along the way, but you always have to keep your eye on what the long game is and make adjustments on your short game to get there. I, I, I love that philosophy. So you, you talked about that first wine tasting going down to Orange County. And of course, they put it out there, they make the pour, and you want them to have a great experience. But we know wine is something that's individual to some people's taste. Some people like it. Some people won't like it. Right. right. And just like I would love to have everybody love everything there is about the C-suite network or C-suite radio, or when I was the chief marketing officer of Eastman Kodak about that product. And I know they didn't always like that. How do you deal with that? I don't know, adversity, that, that negative rating, that, that, you know, that other piece of it, that when someone doesn't like it, how does that affect you? And, and and how does your patience play into that game? You know, I, I, it's never, it's interesting. I haven't ever looked at that as a negative because, you know, I think everybody, I always say everybody's palate is going to be different. Mm -hmm. And certainly our style of wine coming from this cooler part of Napa, which is, um, you know, less fruit forward. If you, if you know your wine terms and a little more minerality, deeper berries and things like that, that's a different style and taste altogether than what people might see from St. Helena or Calistoga or other parts of the Napa Valley. So for me, it was always, you know, there's no judgment. It's no, um, I don't take personal offense or anything at that. I really just say, okay, you know, your palate is going to be different and that's okay. Everybody's palate is, is, uh, you know, sensitive to different things. And fortunately it hasn't been a big issue. Most people really enjoy what we're creating and producing. Um, they tend to be very, uh, they go well with, with meals, for example, and chefs like that because it's not overpowering a, a meal or a menu. And so for me, you know, I don't take any of that personally. If someone just said, oh, I just, this isn't my style. Like, okay, not a problem. There's lots of other styles out there that you can try. Just this is what we all wear, different style of clothing or fashion wine is also that kind of commodity. So people have been making wine for as long as we've had almost human beings, at least civilized humans. And your product is deeply rooted in tradition, but in the spirit of today, and I put that in quotes because we pulled that from some of your literature. How, how are you currently combining the traditional with the need to remain innovative in an industry that's, that's changing all the time. Yeah. And when we say traditional, I mean, what we are doing is not trying to um, change what comes out of the vineyard. A good wine always starts with good soil or what we call terroir. And we don't alter that, change it, or, or try to manipulate that at all. Our farming practices, we were the actual first 
organic vineyard in our area within Coombsville. There's a few others now, but back in 2009 is when we became uh, what we called CCOF, which is um, Certified California Organic Farm. And oh. that's a big process, takes six yeah. years, you know, big deal, adds a bit more um, cost, if you will, for the farming itself. N- nothing, nothing with the government in California takes a short period of time. Let's just no. be clear, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, never, never does. And so we yeah. protect that and value that greatly. And I think, so those kinds of um, what I call traditional aspects of just doing the right thing by the soil, by the farm, by the vines. But in the winemaking aspect is what can we do to always look at perfecting a product? Every winemaker within the U.S. is always, it's interesting because every time we have a harvest come, we're like, oh, we're excited. What is this one going to be? How, what are the nuances that are slightly different from last year's harvest or 10 years ago? You know, It's always an interesting process. It's like creating a new artwork. It's creating a new painting. And you've got various tools to create that painting, be them what the winemaker does with yeast or with barrels or with, uh, you know, the harvest and fermentation time or whatever. There's all sorts of, I tell people, if you think of an artist with a hundred colors on their palette, we have those hundred colors in the ability to create something different whenever we want to, to create the best that we possibly can. And that's where the, the modern side, I think, comes from it where in the past, maybe people didn't do that as much. Today, we're able to do that. You know, I need to ask you about the things that are going on right now, because you talk about testing your patience, you know, testing your, you know, uh, stick to itness. You, you guys are going through, I mean, we, we got we got drought, we've got now we got fires everywhere. We've also got, you know, this huge global pandemic, which has affected, you know, people coming in, <clears throat> excuse me, for tasting rooms. They're not using the tasting rooms, but is business up, is business down? And how are you dealing with all the adversity that you're facing? Yeah, you know, this year has definitely been a challenge, you know, for every one of us in all businesses, not just the wine business, but the wine business in particular um, this year with, you know, shutting down of wineries for a while, um, as so many businesses were, that was, you know, specific and difficult. Um, You know, shutting down of restaurants affects us too, because restaurants tend to buy our wines and they're not selling either. So the channels that we were used to, which was direct to consumer or DTC, direct to trade, which are the restaurants or distribution, all of that was you know cut off in March, April, May timeframe. And so dealing with that and, and being innovative and in how do you address it? And so the concept is, of course, we do virtual wine tastings and we do virtual events and things like that to introduce our brand to various people around the country. Um, we paired ourselves up uh, with, you know, local artists or national artists. We have a fabulous friend in New York, Anna Bergman, who is a, you know, Broadway singer uh, who paired up with a pianist who works, who's the head pianist for the San Francisco Opera. And we did a virtual, you know, national conference with wines as part of it, which was interesting. You know, and more recently now, of course, we're dealing with the aftermath of these fires which um, we did deal with that back in 2017 as well. And fortunately, we were, my personal vineyard was not um, affected too much, although we were ready to evacuate if we had to, which we ended up uh, for a few days having to do. Um, and this year, it's 
the smoke and overhang and all that while the grapes were still maturing and wondering to this day, we are still waiting and I'm not alone in this. Many, many, many wineries are uh, wondering and waiting because harvest is looming, whether or not we will be able to harvest our grapes and make wine, whether or not there's going to be a smoke taint issue. So dealing with these things, we are always looking at how do we pivot? How do we innovate? How do we do around this? And from a marketing point of view, we, we you know continue to put out that we are doing virtual events. We work with all the things that we already have in our inventory. And going forward, we're like, okay, you know, what do we do that's different and unique? And how do we get people to still come to Napa? Because a lot of people think, you know, unfortunately the media portrays everything as being burned up. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. open for business and it's all good. And it's actually beautiful, clear skies now. So, you know, all of that takes addressing it, um, making quick decisions, but also impactful decisions about where, again, I always look at where is this going to affect us five years from now? How do we affect what we do now? But in general, to answer the last part of your question, we are actually up 26.5%. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. And that's interesting to me because we've had fewer people through the doors, obviously. But you, but you must have been p- pivoting a little bit more towards the direct sales, I would assume, yes. right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and that is really um, interesting to me because, you know, with people not able to travel, we're getting, you know, fewer people coming through the doors, as mentioned. But wine sales for us have been up dramatically. Um, so it's been really wonderful. I think part of that is um, the amazing support that people are doing for small businesses in general. I'm a small business with just a handful of employees. So it's uh, been really um, heartwarming for me to see that level of support and not just for my brand, but for all brands that are dealing with this um, issue. So that's been really, I think, a great thing. And that's really helped us continue to to stay strong. C-Suite Radio. Yeah, is how how real is this and uh, this Scotch taint or Scotch Scotch? I'm thinking yeah. about Scotch again. Yeah. I was thinking about Scotch consumption. To get through it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I was thinking about Scotch consumption is also up, but uh, as well yeah. as well as the wine. The, but the smoke taint, how ser- I mean, how real is that? Was was there such a thing in 2017 during the fires then? And is that yeah. continued to be an issue? 2017, it um, yes. It what I've been hearing and learning. You know, even though the fires in 2017 were in Napa, up in the hills and things, for some interesting reason, most of us, like I had my grapes already in fermentation about four days before those fires wow. in October hit. Okay. So I'm fine. We just announced, um, just released our 2017 Cabernet Sauvignon just um, earlier this month. So that's all good. The difference between then and now is the, that smoke tended to be there and it was quickly dissipated over time. It didn't hang in the air for you know, weeks on end. What we're seeing now is these fires for all throughout California started in mid-August. Now we're in mid, um, you know, bit, mid uh, September or so, or towards the end of September. And there is the issue of all that smoke just hanging in very long. And that affects the grapes because they weren't as close to harvest quite yet. So that permeates the ash and the uh, I'm mispronouncing it, the glycol. It mixes in with the sugars. It can penetrate skins. It then can create that problem. What we don't know yet in Napa is to what extent 
of all the 700 or so wineries in just Napa alone, not even considering Sonoma, which is right next door, you know, how many of us are going to be truly affected by it? And how many of us will have to make the very difficult decision to drop fruit and not make a wine at all? Laboratories that we depend on to create and give a, a sense of where we are are backed up. People are sending their wine samples or grape samples to far away as Australia and British Columbia. Um, we're waiting and harvest is impending. So it's an interesting time to actually make both a financial decision, which is difficult, hoping that you're, you have crop insurance to cover what you're going to lose potentially, and or making the decision to make a wine that may or may not in three to four years time when you put it in the market, have an issue with that smoke taint flavor, which nobody really likes in their wines. Well, I, I got to tell you, I have some favorites of your wines. I love your Bordeaux blend. I like. Oh, thank I, you. I, I really, truly love that. Your cab's awesome, always has been, but I really like the Bordeaux blend. And you've got a really uh, great Sauvignon Blanc. I love I love the whites, the crisp oh, yeah. whites like that. And uh, really nice, nice bottle as well. Thank you. Well, that one, you know, we're known for our reds since, yep. you know, 1995. And, um, you know, now that we have um, the Ackerman Heritage House and we're doing, we were doing more events and things, we needed to be able to have a, a meet and greet wine, if you will, when people came for a visit. So I personally, in a, on a hot summer day, you know, I'd rather drink a lighter, you know, crisper kind of wine. And so we were offered some ability to buy fruit from our area in Coombsville. So our um, Sauvignon Blanc is from that area. And uh, it was a wonderful with our new winemaker, Leo Tellez. He, uh, he made a beautiful wine. So we're excited to have that in addition to the rest of the wines we have. What's your favorite wine? Uh, the question everyone asks me. <laughs> yeah, I, sure. Um, you know, it's funny. I tell people, it's like everyone asks me that. And I said, well, I have to say I love all my children, of course. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I have, you know, it depends on what we're doing and what I'm doing. Um, but personally, I know our wines, they're beautiful when they're young and they're new and they're just out. Um, however, as they get older, they get more interesting, more complex, just like you see in Bordeaux, you know, wines with some age on them are these lovely memorable kinds of wines. What I'm noticing is our wines, you know, now I can go back and say, you know, 20, what, 25 years of making wine now that when they get older, they get more interesting, more complex and drinking wines now from 2004, 2005, 2006, those in particular are still lovely. We don't have a lot of that left, but we always hold back a little bit just to showcase what those wines become over time. And we did that in our early days because as a new brand, we didn't, you know, people didn't know, well, who's, what's Coombsville, where, what kind of, you know, yet another Cabernet, but we could show them as they aged, they became this beautiful complexity to the wine and the chefs loved them. And that's why we were able to get on a lot of really beautiful high-end uh, restaurants, including French Laundry and Per Se and a few others across the country. Um, awesome places, yeah. And that's, and that's really saying a lot for a very small brand like ours. So for me, you know, I love all the wines. They get more interesting for me over time. But certainly um, when, they're, when they're babies, as I call them, they're, they're also very good too. Depends on yeah. your palate. 
and, and I hope that your wines, I've been at French Laundry before and I was with a group of people celebrating and I watched someone buy a $4,500 bottle of wine at French Laundry. So I hope that, that you will we'll get you there. Yeah. Thank great. you. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we don't have a lot of wine these days and, um, and we are you know, seeing that more and more people, um, are finding us and discovering us. And that's been exciting for me personally. It's, you know, talk about patience. I've been waiting, you know, 25 years for, for this moment to, to start to see that there's resonance with people on what we're creating and doing and our involvement with the community, our involvement to support um, other small producers and small wineries, which is very, very important uh, for all of us to work together really well. I think that's something that people don't haven't really understood about Napa. We're all so quote competitors at one level, but actually we all work very, very well together to um, make sure that coming out of Napa Valley, what we can produce is the best that Napa Valley can produce. We all I, work I think very that's hard unique. That. that I think that's fairly unique to see Napa comes together quite frequently uh, yes. as producers, and I, I quite that's what's made you the eight hundred pound gorilla in the wine market. Right. You know, exactly. just to have that. When you compare California wines to you know every state, I think except for one or two now has wine production and have have had, but it's really come into its own in the last twenty years. Yes. And California is the 800-pound gorilla in the market compared to New York, Oregon, Washington, and some other great wine-producing states. Right. But a, a massive, massive thing. And um, and do you do you guys come together as a cooperative in some way, or is it the lobbying, marking effort? How does it done? With about a minute left to go, yeah. uh, what's the What's the way it's working? Well, the overarching group is Napa Valley Bittners Association, which I've been involved with, you know, for a long, long time now, and chaired a, uh, a committee or two with them. They're sort of the overarching membership association that really um, pushes the concept of Napa Valley as a unified area. Then separately from that, we have what we call our um, Appalachian groups. So we're in the Coombsville Appalachian. There's the Coombsville Vintners and Growers Association, which is an organization of all of us within the area that help promote our particular sub-Appalachian of Coombsville. And there's about 50, 60 members in that. So those would be the same for Stag's Leap, the same for Spring, the same for... Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So we we do that. And I think all of us together, you know, we're, we are also in it together right now with all of these, um, with the pandemic issues, with the fire issues. In the past, we had earthquake issues. We've had everything. And we are still here and still strong and still looking forward. And I personally am still looking forward to you know what's ahead it's it's a awesome place to be well i'm looking forward to the next my next case I, i'm looking forward to that so hey listen i want to thank you but i also want to point out your address too because uh somebody might go and just type in ackerman wines and mm-hmm. i know that there's other ackermans out there. there's a family name so yeah. make sure you go to ackerman family vineyards and that's so yeah. i want to tell everybody that's listening in or watching right now uh, you know listen we love all wines but let's make sure we get you the good ones okay so go to the ackerman family uh, vineyards.com and you'll be able to find uh, their wines and i'm telling you i'm speaking from experience i've known the family for a while and uh, i'm telling great wines you're going to enjoy this and i'm i'm having a blast learning about wines this year of course we're doing some wine tasting we're going to encourage everybody there c-suite radio 
Tricia and Greg, I'm going to turn it over to you because I know there's tons of questions and I want to get to our members' questions. There are some phenomenal questions. Thank you so much, Lauren and Jeff. This was incredible. Um, and I'm going to just, the first question I have is Knox. And uh, Knox is actually one of our newest members in C-Suite Network there in South Dakota. And, um, and, and it's going to bring us out to big, big picture. Your business experience prior to this is extraordinary. And you built and sold very, during a very challenging time in the 80s. And just wondering, can you share how you would apply the learnings of what you did there in terms of what you're doing now and, and your, your approach clearly to things that are beyond your control are phenomenal and uh, inspiring. So uh, I'm excited to see how you're connecting those dots and how you would recommend, you know, we do as business leaders as well. Yeah. You know, again, I go back to the concept. Thank you. I, I go back to the concept of you know, as any business, I mean, forget it being the wine business, but any business, we have to, you know, identify where are we going and what are, what are our strategies for getting to those particular goals. And so what I learned by being in the business management consulting in the IT world, working with over 75 clients back in those days, large and small startups and very established, you know, multinational organizations, the commonality was how well do you know your customer? How well do you know your markets? What are the niches that you're trying to approach and look at and go into? And, and what are your strategies? And then also understanding what are your resources? Because we can't spend everything all the time just to get those things due. So prioritizing resources, prioritizing goals, those kinds of things. When you fast forward to the wine business, starting a small winery, same thing, much smaller in its footprint perhaps, but the same strategy and the same way of approaching it applies. Who are your market? When I was only making 200 cases, I wasn't able to sell across the country. Um, you know, I had uh, an opportunity to, to pour wine once in Hong Kong. And I had one guy from, you know, a Hong Kong resident say, I'll buy all 200 cases of your wine. And I turned him down. Why? Because that wasn't going to build brand. It would satisfy a financial need right then and there, which is mighty tempting when you're small. But I realized that wasn't going to help me build brand over time if I sold it all to one person and wasn't able to provide the seed, if you will, for a bigger and broader market, which I needed to do. So those kinds of things that I learned in the technology side of things really applied. And I've actually done some side work, you know, you know, for free, if, if you will, for other small businesses, other small winery owners, because I truly believe that helping each other is really, really important. And that's one of the things that using those skills that I had before, applying them to our own market, we can't be all things to all people all the time, but we can still add as we grow and keep going and having that vision and your goal. All right. Kevin Bemmel has a question. He says, how are you dealing with what appears to be a decline in interest in wine by younger people? So Kevin wants to know how you can promote underage drinking. <laughs> I don't know about that, Kevin, but uh, um, we have addressed that issue. And we, you know, that's one of the other challenges, even um, before COVID, because the millennial market that we all hear and talk about all the time are just coming into their own in terms of having potentially some, some money to spend on various things. What are they spending on? Not premium or super premium wines. They're, you know, we're in the category of wines that range in price all the way up to, you know, $200, uh, starting at around $30 and going in between, which is why we actually expanded our base of wines so that we could accommodate 
you know, some of those folks that are looking at a $30 to $40 bottle versus a, you know, $195 bottle. But it is interesting because the wine industry is challenged um, right now. Baby boomers were the ones that really built the business, if you will, since the late 80s, early 90s. That market is um, tapering off a little bit. We're seeing the Gen Xers you know, stepping up, but not to the same level. And then you know, the millennials are, are just coming into their own and discovering that, but they can also buy, and I know here in California and probably other states, cannabis. If you have $50, are you gonna spend it on cannabis? Are you going to spend it on beer? Are you going to spend it on spirits, hard seltzers, or wine? Those are the options. And so what we have done to to work with that is we have actually created a, a wine that is in the price range about $40 to $50. It's a cab blend. Um, and it is just coming out. And we haven't even promoted it yet. But that will be a wine that we can then market across the country when the country opens up a little bit more and be able to be another option that might introduce somebody to something that they're willing to try at a lower price point. Fantastic. I say you buy them all and throw a hell of a party. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there we <laughs> go. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much for a great ke- uh, question. Kevin's one of our uh, global faculty leaders in C-suite, so uh, really appreciate those great questions. Pamela Lerner had a, a fantastic question right from the top of your introduction, uh, Lauren, and it's a great one. It's, you know, how can you have patience with all that is happening in the world and man alive, it's really all happening there that you're addressing and then filter it all in terms of what's happening out there in the environment and what you need to do each and every day to succeed. You know, thank you for that question. And it is one, it is, you know, as I mentioned, I've been a super challenging year and but it was challenging before this year this year just happens to be 10 times more challenging and i think you know at the end of the day i'm always i'm an optimist i um i tend to look at each day by itself and i'm like all oh, right what can i do to move the the needle forward this particular day i try not to get distracted and i don't you know believe the press all the time and i and i literally just say what is it you know i didn't work 25 years to give up now i didn't work um so hard to build a small brand that's still growing um to just you know walk away from it you really have to dig deep in yourself and your own psyche to go why am i still doing this you know i'm also coming of age where a lot of people aren't working anymore and doing that I am completely dedicated to continue this as long as I possibly can. And I think it's really the challenge every single day to get up and go, what, am I, what are my priorities today? What do I want to accomplish? What is the, my long-term plan here? And I have people that depend on me for their livelihoods, especially now during COVID when layoffs and unemployment is so huge. And I've kept them going and they are phenomenal, very small, but phenomenal team that have been innovative and right there with me every step of the way. Nurturing your employees through difficult times is also part of making sure your business is strong. And that's what we've been doing as well. So for me, it's just every single day, I have to remind myself why I'm here. Malco Ebers has a few questions. Uh, One of them is uh, he wants to know the role of social media in your business. How do you engage customers online? And, you know, it's interesting, Malcolm, because that, um, you know, we're, we're small in Napa. And, and in the past, people found us by just visiting Napa. 
you know, Napa receives over 3 million or did uh, 3 million visitors a year. And we would find a few of those coming through and having experience with us at the Victorian, which I um, have, and also, you know, through the vineyard and such. Of course, that all changed. And so social media was always something we did, but we probably weren't, to be honest, as serious about it as we certainly are this year. And the put together a social media strategy um, and also make it easier for people to find us online with Google ads and Google, you know, the, the SEO kinds of approaches and a number of other things. So we have become, um, we have dedicated as the market shifted primarily this year from a DTC direct consumer model and certainly no more trade and no more restaurants and all that right now. We are really dependent on virtual to find new people who to explore and understand who we are. Um, honestly, being involved with this is part of that and, and also creating a presence of showing what we're doing, being honest, being authentic and really not hiding or, or glorifying everything, but to really just say, hey, you're, we're here, come check us out, have fun, we'll make it worth your while. You know, if you like us, great. If you don't, no problem, lots of choices. But just finding those different avenues through LinkedIn, through um, Instagram, through Facebook and other, you, we have our own YouTube channel now. We do Facebook live events. We've got sort of all sorts of videos now that we, do cooking classes. We're doing, you know, virtual performances. We're doing everything to just say, Hey, we're here. Have fun with this. This mm -hmm. is, you know, especially these days when we're, when we're stressed and we're anxious about what's going on, this is the time to have fun with it. So we are. Lauren. I'm sorry. Has your ad, has your ad budget, your marketing budget gone up or down since you moved everything more towards virtual because you, you have a big wedding you do you you're elopement so you, you call it on your website so you have a big in-house and that probably is going away a little bit with less people traveling so you, you probably don't have to do as much printed material and tv buys so right. what's how has that affected your your total ad budget to be honest you know uh, we've never done those kinds of things before because we are small we don't have that kind of significant budget to do that we have really depended on word of mouth uh, referrals um, you know, limited amount of social media, as I said in the past. And so for us to do more social media, I would say we've shifted all, you know, what marketing budget we do have to that. We've also worked with other partners who also have distributed databases that get the word out, get the name out. We've um, seen, you know, uh, magazines in the industry pick us up. The, I actually have two businesses, by the way. It's Ackerman Family Vineyards, which is the winery side, and Ackerman Heritage House, which you see my virtual background here was inside that. That is my tasting room in downtown Napa, which is a 19, or excuse me, 1888 Victorian that I bought in 2010, restored, completely redid it. It was quite the project. That's a whole nother story. It took five years to put that back to life. And this is our uh, event space that we rent out for private events and dinners and things. So that side of the equation right now is a little bit quieter because of county rules within Napa. We are still doing, you know, people come in and see, you know, do private Victorian teas or private events and things. But that marketing is kind of calmed down. What we've shifted to is more marketing on the social media side for
for the winery itself. So Lauren, we've run out of time, but I just want to acknowledge that we cannot wait. And I know we're setting up time to be able to set up a virtual tasting for C-Suite to be able to enjoy everything you shared with us today. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.